Chester, you and I both come from a non-scientific background. Yes. In your case, music mm -hmm. and the flute. In my case, uh, literature, you know, especially dramatic literature. And here we are at St. John's College in which about probably half of our time we spend teaching mathematics and laboratory science. Mm -hmm. And we both love it. Mm -hmm. We've done it together a number of times yeah. with much pleasure. Um, so right now you're working on quantum mechanics with mm -hmm. your seniors. Yeah, we're just about coming mm -hmm. to an end of the semester, yes. Yeah, yeah so how does, how does someone approach that subject for the first time yeah. from a non-scientific background? I mean, can you, can you recount what it was like for you to get into it initially? And how did you find your way in? What, what opened the door for you? I think what started to attract me once I once I'd had the job was that uh, there are all these demonstrations and experiments. And so I was fascinated on trying to see how the experiments could go along with the readings. And mm -hmm. I have to say, you know, having been away from studying these things, uh, uh, I, I, I can't explain, but I, I fell in love with with the readings. And uh, I especially fell in love with readings where when I couldn't figure something out and the language was accessible to me, such as French, yeah. I would start to translate. And I think that was kind of the, the theme. I, I would find something difficult. I knew there had to be something exciting about it. And then, yeah. uh, so that, that allowed me to look at the laboratory more just as the speech of these amazing human beings. And then the practical part, uh, yeah, how to make things work. I mean, I'm, uh, as anybody who knows me well knows that I'm uh, not the most practical human being in the universe, but it was just a lot of fun to work with students and other colleagues and try, you know, not just to make things work, but to see how the so-called physical world oh, yeah, yeah. coincided with it. So what you were just saying, Jester, might be analogous to an experience I had in graduate school working on Shakespeare and uh, you know, reading plays and tons of criticism and then discovering in the theater itself the practical mm -hmm. you know, and the experimental mm -hmm. where you have to actually get on your feet and give body and voice to these things mm -hmm. and find the, as you were saying, find the way that makes it work mm -hmm. given that particular group of people. And that's what really captured me mm -hmm. and made me you know, want to continue working on that for the rest of my life. But maybe that's analogous to what you're describing with the with the lab, where you go from things on a page or written to, to something real that you can get your hands on. Yeah, to condense the story a little bit, the junior lab, it's a difficult tutorial. Uh, and uh, It was uh, once described to me as the most difficult thing we do. It's, it's one of the ones. I, I put down music <laughs> as, yeah. as another one, but yeah. Yes, and... Uh, uh, but everything gets worked out in that year. I mean, many things get worked yeah. out. All the things we kind of take for granted uh, for force, energy, mass, motion, speed, all those things, you know, kind of are worked out, you know, with a new start from Galileo mm -hmm. and Descartes. Yeah. And then the senior year begins as if we already knew them. We were professionals right. at them. The readings are by people closer to our own time, you know, the 19th century, mm -hmm. who assume that we have done the junior lab, <laughs> in fact, much more than the junior lab. 
That's why I think senior lab is the hardest because it yeah. presumes already the junior uh, classical physics background. Yeah. And then goes into a terrain where, you know, to go back to what we were saying a moment ago, where the picturable and the experiential yes. and the bodily aren't necessarily going to help you. In fact, they might get in the way. That's absolutely right. In fact, very soon in the year with Thompson, we look at cathode rays. <laughs> uh, it's hard to even know what a cathode ray is. A flash of, looks like a flash of light. It turns out, we'll be told, are streams of electrons, but we have no idea mm -hmm. what the thing is. But we're using the mathematics of Galileo, of the parabola of, uh, of a body's moving in a horizontal direction and bodies yeah. falling. Yeah. So basically, we're, make, we're using the tools from the junior lab to, and the forces that act upon the bodies that we know as bodies to act upon this stream, yeah. which that wasn't the only interpretation of the cathode ray, as you know, as well as I know. Mm -hmm. uh, but Thompson thought, well, it would make more sense, or it could be we, if we could consider them as bodies which are both going forward, therefore with mass, mm -hmm. and also falling. Mm -hmm. And so we, that turns out to be experimentally successful. We're, we set up the apparatus and they go shooting through at a very fast pace, but they also fall a little bit. And so lo and behold, they go in a parabola, mm -hmm. but they're also acted upon by a magnet. So those first readings in senior lab where we're looking at, uh, and this is gonna be a theme uh, for both our conversation and for the senior lab, the very, very small. So I tell yeah. the students sometimes, don't get discouraged if you're drawing blanks on, you know, Planck. We'll, we'll be going at this four or five times through different authors yeah. to try and understand quantum mechanics. Do you think that's right? I think that's dead right. Can you indulge me in one kind of warm-up to that? Yeah. Because once you know what's going to happen, then you look back. So we, we have even Rutherford mm -hmm. who wants to know what what the shape of the atom is. And, bas uh, uh, and basically, it turns out that the, but what shape he means, how much space it's taking up. And so it's still, it, he's using a Newton proposition. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The proposition which talks about how bodies work in the heavens. Uh, uh, very big bodies. Very big <laughs> bodies to show how a very small particle called an alpha particle, uh, small uh, is deflected when it is shot into uh, well through gold foil mm -hmm. now the even the set of these things it turns out to be infinitely elaborate but basically he is throwing alpha particles at gold foil and the alpha particles are going through mm -hmm. now what he discovers is that the atom itself is taking up an insanely small amount of space and there's and it's mostly just so-called empty space and mm -hmm. force. But the alpha particle is curving. And now later, our interpretation, once we see that small particles are, can also be thought of as waves, when we get into quantum mechanics, even in wave mechanics, we will see that the very little alpha particle could be interpreted as a wave going through. Yes. So, but, to really answer your question, I think it's when we get Planck. 
We get Plunk, so yeah. Plunk, you know, many things can be said about Plunk. I don't really understand what he was up to, but I can say the following. He was in, investigating the radiation of heat yeah. and what he stumbles on uh, and kind of a popular but not too bad a way of saying is that energy is discontinuous at the small level yeah. that discrete. it's discrete. Uh, uh, now he, so why yeah. is that a big deal? Because we're used to discreteness just from the earliest age when we start counting. One, yeah. two, three. So that comes naturally to us. Right. So to say energy is discrete, it's countable, it comes in, you know, uh, discrete particles. What, why is that, or discrete uh, amounts? Why is that so? Sometimes I think the students don't quite feel the force of that. Right. So this yeah. cup would be discrete. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> There's going to be no, if I needed two cups, I'd just take yours. Mm -hmm. But if I start to let the cup fall, which I won't do, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, it, would, it would speed up. And eventually we're going to say as it speeds up, its energy. It's kinetic energy. Is getting, is moving energy. It's as it says, it's vis viva is getting greater and greater. In, now, a, in a continuous fashion. In a continuous fashion. Why yeah. would I not expect that to be the case? Yeah. And the, the, again, here's where experiment comes through. So there's much that we can say about Planck, but Planck comes up with a mathematical expression where on the left-hand side he says energy is equal to, on the right-hand side he has the frequency. Now it's the frequency of a wave Mm -hmm. which is the star player of continuity. Yeah. So energy is equal, is proportional to frequency, but with a constant. constant. And that constant is 6.625 times 10 to the negative 27. Mm -hmm. That's a very small number. So we're going to go yeah. towards the small. Mm -hmm. so, so that's what causes the energy to be quantized. That's what it does. That constant. Yes. And this is something I'm just so glad I get to say this, that that proportionality constant, Planck's constant H, the units of it are the units of what Leibniz called <laughs> a moving action. Oh, yeah. The only point yeah. of this is that hundreds of years ago, people not doing experiments. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So hold up. So yeah. you, does that mean that what we were previously thinking of as a continuous um, a spectrum of energy, like a falling, moving mm -hmm. body. Mm -hmm. It's not continuous because moving action is discrete? Well, Leibniz certainly, Leibniz's example of moving action, show you how one of the greatest geniuses of all time has simple examples. If you were to walk across the room, you have a certain mass, uh, and you were, were to walk across a certain distance of the room, uh, and we closed our eyes, we'd see you here and then see you there. Then, you could either do it quickly or slowly. Mm. So well, I would say the formal effect was your mass times the distance. He'd say the vigorous effect would be how fast you went. He'd say you multiply those three quantities together and you get moving action. And Leibniz would think this is at the heart mm -hmm. of substance or being. You know, that uh, Now, we'll get out of that realm really quickly and back to the really important thing. So when if I say E energy is equal to H, that con small constant times the frequency, 
that leads into, let's talk about Einstein for a second, that, that leads into the thought that, let's talk about a particular frequency, let's call, talk about blue light. Mm-hmm. Blue light could have, has a frequency, by the way, which is higher than red light. So that means that Einstein has to reason to or think or come up with this beautiful notion that there's a unit of blue light which is, we'll give it a number, which happens to be its frequency. So already you can see there's a kind of, yeah. we're using a wave property to talk about the unit or discrete particle, the quantum of blue light. Mm-hmm. So blue light comes in units and now, but it doesn't, its second unit would be two times that amount, then three times that amount. There's nothing in between. Nothing in between. Nothing in between, yeah. and so just to finish, put the nail into the coffin, red light has a smaller frequency, so it comes into one unit of red light, two units of red light, three units of red light. So three units of red light have less energy than three units of blue light. Okay. Now that, it's not too hard to go back to Maxwell, the man who just gave us all we'd ever want to know about uh, uh, light as a wave to show that there's there's kind of there's a discrepancy between that. that mm-hmm. For Maxwell, light is continuous. So yeah. So what's what's the connection between what we were talking about earlier, the size question, big mm-hmm. and little, and what we're now talking about, the quantization or the discreteness of energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is why it would be important. Uh, so Planck and his studies, which had really not that much to do with this, did discovered the following thing. When you heat a body, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, and it, it gives, and it gives off heat. Planck discovered that if energy did not come in discrete units, it would inst- almost instantaneously give off all of its heat. You know, the popular event, this is called the ultraviolet, ultraviolet catastrophe. catastrophe. You all be incinerated. Yeah. So, but, yeah. but it's really deep. It's meaning that, you know, people talk about ovens, but it's just, he t- Plag talks about black bodies. So imagine mm-hmm. painting a body black. It absorbs a lot of heat. Once it comes to equilibrium, if energy is continuous, in an argument which can be understood by liberal arts students, uh, 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 the math simply doesn't work out and the energy is instantly given off. Infinite amounts. Infinite amounts. According to the classical equations. According to everything that we studied in the junior year. Okay. And that's the beginning. That's the beginning of the end. That's the beginning of the end. And Um, so it's, I guess the argument is, but energy is not given off instantaneously or in, in infinite amounts. Therefore, we have to start to think about energy at the small level as being discrete. But in our daily lives... We don't notice that, no. Because the unit of energy is so small, so we would not know. So that unit, that Planck's constant, its very smallness as a constant, yes. it's like 6.67 times 10 to the negative 27. That's or right. Something. Erg seconds, Erg, yes. Yeah, very, very small. That smallness translates into, is this right? translates into a limit on what we can know 
about small things. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Okay. And so the next move is... And that limit is not, just to clarify, that's not um, in principle um, uh, overcomable. That is, we can't get over, get, get smaller than that limit by getting better equipment or, you know, better experiments or, you know, anything like that. Right, and that takes a little while to come out, but once we, I guess, we, we go through Schrodinger, once we get, yeah, I guess we need to talk about matter and radiation or matter and waves. So if we, if we pick, pick this thread up, that the discreteness of energy, as shown by this new constant of nature, means there's a limit to what we can know about small things. What exactly are we talking about in terms of what we want to know and what we can't know and, and then the implications of that, mm -hmm. of that limit on our knowledge? Yeah, I mean, I guess to really answer that, we'd have to go to the end of the senior lab where, in a certain way, quantum mechanics has been developed uh, and its predictions come true, mm -hmm. but because of this factor H, it's impossible to have simultaneous knowledge of, for example, where somebody is or where a body is and how fast it's moving. Yeah. Now we assume... It's what every parent wants to know about their child. <laughs> where are you and what are you doing? Right. Yeah. And now we can't know that about little particles. For example, we would all say that this cup is on the table. We could give it some kind of spatial coordinates. We could say where it is. We can give its location. And we could also say, give it speed. In this case, we would say it's at rest with respect to you and myself. And now it's in motion. Mm -hmm. What quantum mechanics can't get beyond is that when we actually, if it's, if as the particles get smaller and smaller, if this particle is now at the smallest level, yeah. my measuring its position where it is with precision, the more precise I make that measurement, the less precise I know how fast it's going. In right. fact, the extreme case is to know exact, within a very small amount where it is, I've lost it for all time. Mm -hmm. That's to say, my looking so, at it causes it to go away, but it's it's a lot more complicated than it's just a subjective kind of thing or an objective kind of thing. This kind of, or to put it more succinctly, H is now a factor of all the physical expressions for both matter and waves, or the thing, the matter that we're composed of, the atoms that we're composed of. First of all, this sounds like some kind of law of compensation that you know various poets and writers have talked about. That is, you do good with your left hand, you're simultaneously doing something bad with your right, right. in some other part of the world. That there's this kind of balance, balancing act. You can't, so you can't know simultaneously position and momentum. Right. And the better you do at one, the worse you do at the other. Right. So that, that sounds like written into nature, there's this sense of, this is 
Emerson's term, compensation. Mm. Right. Uh, He's what, speaking of it morally, but he's yeah, talking yeah, about Yeah, Niels, Niels Bohr, by the way, who's one of the people we read, who is also a huge person in this mm -hmm. because he there was a high school teacher who looked at excited hydrogen gas mm -hmm. and saw a spectrum. He saw some discrete lines. So the gas, let it be kind of a pinkish color, gave off a red and a green and a couple of blue lines basically something that anybody can do by heating up a gas. He, nobody could explain it. Mm -hmm. Bohr takes a look at it and it can only be explained if the hydrogen atom we all learned about in high school, okay, has a nucleus say here mm -hmm. and the electron around here. Like a solar system. Like model. a solar system. Yeah. It turns out this solar system has unique places for the electron. The electron cannot exist no, in between those unique well, that's places. The, that's the thing that has always given me wonder and a sense of almost of the mystical. How does an electron go from one orbit to another orbit without passing in between and while doing so giving off a continuous spectrum of energy? Because as we're saying, it's just discrete chunks, that means there's there's a jump, a leap, and nothing in between. Right, and, and with someone like Niels Bohr in the beginning, he would say, you cannot give the kind of account that we've been assuming that we can give in not only natural science, but as you pointed out in the poetry of Emerson in our day-to-day -day life. We assume, for example, that this cup has a location, has a speed, has an energy, I could do it a little more generally, mm -hmm. that we as bodies have, pro or souls even, have properties yeah. that are inherent with us. Yeah. It might be difficult to get to know them, but quantum mechanics is telling us that these things, Does, they exist in a different mode. Now, the technical term is a state, and you could start to get at it by potentials, like I yeah. have the potential to be this or that, but it... Stay. Okay, but... Does nature make leaps? That's that word occurs in Dirac yeah. or jump um, when when he's talking about uh, you know a, a photon, which we'll hope talk about in a moment. Uh, you know, uh, uh, leaping into a certain state of polarization or of translation, but that word leap suggests again something like what Kierkegaard calls a leap of faith or what. You know, Pascal talks about as you know as a leap that one's soul has to perform in order to, well, to know God. So why are we? Why is that word turning up in the study of nature? Yeah, because has, you know. Yeah, well, but back to our solar system, uh, yeah. a planet couldn't go from one location <clears throat> to another one. It would have to do it instantaneously. Uh, and even if it did it, uh, insofar as it would be giving off so much energy yeah. that it would immediately crash into the sun. Yeah. But these kinds of things, so I guess what, what the, the study of the very small shows us is that we need new kinds of laws. Well, maybe new kinds of language because new kinds of maybe law. the word leap is just misleading yeah we can't talk about quantum mechanics yeah. 
using words like that, even though they're descriptively helpful yeah. because they mislead us. Yeah, and I want to say one more, yeah. more thing along the lines of the practical and why we care. We would not be having this conversation, that is to say our atoms yeah. could not hold together the physical universe could not stay together. It's kind of a spin-off of the thing I was talking about with the ultraviolet catastrophe. Yeah. Yeah. The quantum mechanics, only quantum mechanics gives us stabil physical stability. Now this is building from the uh. very small to the very large. So if you, if you want to hold together over time, you have to give up knowing certain things. Or, or or there's a new way. I mean, that's that maybe can get us into Dirac. Yeah, that's the last thing we study. It's a more it's a recent thing at the college. I mean, there have been people who've known about Dirac for a yeah. long time. I mean, for me, the Dirac is so wonderful because he and the experiments that go with it, because you are counting individual photons of light. Right. I mean, that's mind-boggling. Yes. The photon doesn't have mass. Does it have size? I don't. And and one thinks of it as this this continual beam of yeah. you know, of, of something continuous. Well, we, we should get to this. Yeah. Quickly. So let's look. Let's look at the top of what you put on this board. Okay. We do this in the St. John's lab now. Uh, we were able to do it through a very generous grant from the Hudson Trust. And the equipment is quite impressive. The equipment's I mean, it's impressive, and I want to give credit to. Enrique Galvez at Colgate University. Uh, he and about four or five other people 20 years ago started working on experiments that undergraduate physics majors could do yeah. in less time than the professionals had done when this stuff was invented in the first, I mean, it's just stunning. Yeah. That having been said, one of the first things we do, we, we phrase it, does the photon exist? Yes. Even the question is kind of, Interesting, and, and the answer will have to be investigated, but we start with... A particle of light. Right. Okay. We start with laser light, and we would never be able to do it if it were just laser light itself. Mm -hmm. So then we need a laser... We, let's, we, we talk about a laser beam going through a crystal. Mm -hmm. uh, now, something amazing happens here that can be mathematically explained... But the result is purple light goes in here and a very small part of the purple light is converted into red light that comes mm -hmm. out of here. In two, two streams. In two streams and a very, very weak beam of those streams. Because the whole problem is we're never going to see a photon, but we have to be persuaded that, well, once the streams get to these part, and these are beam splitters. Now, if this were a beam of light, even this itself is kind of amazing, half of the beam would go straight through to this thing, which is called a detector. Mm -hmm. The other half would be reflected. This is just with light being a wave. Mm -hmm. Okay. What we want eventually to do is to isolate a single photon and persuaded that if it gets here, if we have a single photon, it can only show up at one of the beam right. splitters. Either B or B prime. So we have to have a small number of them, and these calculations can be made. The other thing we have to, we have, to have ones that are correlated. 
These twins mm -hmm. are amazing. They're what's known as entangled photons of age. They come out together. In other words, in the physicists, physicists talk about the language of begetting. One purple <laughs> That's nice. with, a, with a high frequency begets two reds. Half the frequency. Half the frequency, mm -hmm. so energy and momentum are conserved. In any case, this detector turns out to be more important than we probably have time to talk about, but the experiment is conceptually very, very simple. Either it goes to here mm -hmm. or it goes to here. Now, the thing I didn't draw here is that we only count, these are a kind of a pairs, we only count pairs that are correlated with A. I see. There are many, many photons going on here, but a very small amount are either correlated with A and B a, or B. correlated with A and B prime. But never A and B and B prime together. That's right. And That's the, the key. And so... I think the thing you said is very, very important. We then see that most of the photons we get either correlated with A and B mm -hmm. or A and B prime. That's right. And to make a long story short, once we see that's true, we know that we had no splitting because if the photon were to split and not be a unit, yeah. Then half of it would go to B prime, half, half would go to B, be, yeah. and we uh, and we would be able to know that it got there at more or less the same time. Yeah, we also know it's not it's being treated discreetly as a particle, not a wave. Right. Otherwise, B and B prime would be registering detections all the time. Right. Because right. waves are continuous. Right. So, so with this very sensitive equipment, which uh, we've got. We can we convince ourselves, yeah, photons are real, individual, countable, discrete particles. Yeah, and if you yeah, and photon is another name for light. We're never seeing these things, right? Right. And so, there's a there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes. On so the kind of the more modest way to say is the results we get cannot be explained by a continuous stream of light. I think there's a lot of difference there. Okay. It's kind of a negation or something. It's a negative thing. It's, it's this not could not, this could not, this I think is the whole senior lab at a certain point. This could not be explained by everything we do in the junior, yeah. junior lab. Yeah. I feel a little more comfortable talking about it that way. It can't be explained by uh, light as an electromagnetic wave right. as understood by Maxwell. Right. Yeah. On the other hand, this experiment is crucial because people almost a century before, like Schrodinger and Heisenberg, were predicting that this kind of thing would be happening. Yeah. It's yeah. so simple in, in conception. It's very simple. I mean, basically all I need to draw was light. I wouldn't even talk about this, although it there's a yeah. story that goes on here. Light has goes one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. It's an exercise in counting. Really. It's an exercise in counting. Yeah. But this is the big one. Okay, so once we've got that idea yeah. in our heads, light exists as discrete countable particles. Right. This is the famous interferometer. Right. So I call this the racetrack. The racetrack. Yeah. I sometimes okay. students get more excited if I call it the racetrack, but Basically, uh, 
uh, it's, uh, these lines are just, they're drawn equally. There's a lot of setup here, but light. So it's a square. It's a square. Light comes through again, one of these apparatuses that allows it to either go straight through or to reflect. Then it goes off a mirror and reflects. Then it goes through another one, which allows it either to go straight through or reflect. Okay. That's one path. This way, that way. The other path is straight through, reflect, reflect. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, or, or straight through again. Or right? straight through again. Yeah. yeah. Now, interferometers are used for far more mundane things, but mm -hmm. this one is really exciting. Uh, we have, if we convince ourselves that we have a single photon starting off here. Which we can. Which we can from this yeah. experiment. Yes. Uh, it looks like, well, it could go here, here, or here, here. Yeah. All these options. Four options, really, right? Really, four. One, two, three, four. Right, and yeah. Rock is telling us no. The photon is in both of them at the same time. That's a hard one. Yeah, both the photon is in both of them at the same time. That sounds like saying it's possible for a body to be in two places at the same time. Well, that's right. Which we would all love to be able to do. Right. <laughs> if the photon, the photon does that? Well, this is how we're, yeah, since we can't see it, we obviously see there's a problem. Dirac is also gonna say, we get at that by saying that the photon interferes with itself. Now that too, we should stop for a second. How could a single particle interfere with itself? Yeah. That the thought experiments by all the great yeah. physicists at the beginning of the 20th century, they, once they had real, realized that particles act like waves, they could conceptually think of this photon as a wave and therefore capable of interfering it with itself. If it has two selves. If it has two selves. Okay. But that kind of thing could not be done with the simple apparatus of the thought, of no. the thought experiment. Okay. Uh, uh, but here we can actually do it and it's amazing. What we do is, when we talk about a single photon as interfering with itself, so let's make it a little bit harder. It, we say it interferes with itself, but it's only counted as a photon. At, at these detectors, it appears whole. Whole as, yeah, yeah. so let's just forget about this detector. Let's talk about the stuff that comes through this detector. To be, yeah. Okay, to be. If we change the path Slowly, if we increase the path, one of the paths. Yeah, through this movable mirror. This thing is a movable mirror. And mm -hmm. it's, it's got a lot of sides we don't need to go into, but it allows us by changing a voltage mm -hmm. to change the path, make it greater or, sm mm -hmm. or smaller and back and forth. If it does that, that means that when the photon gets, that's going to go here, gets here, it has two different path lengths. Yes. 
We know so the two yeah. selves have traveled different distances. The two selves have traveled different distances. We yeah. know from simple wave theory, which we learned in the junior lab, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Christian Huygens, you know, uh, uh, that when waves interfere, we get maxima yeah. and minimum. Mm -hmm. We get constructive interference, destructive interference. Mm -hmm. But that's because two parts of a continuous being are going through different distances. Mm -hmm. So what's so beautiful about this second quantum experiment we do is we look at just a single counter and as time goes on, we see that we get a maximum. Yeah. That is say a greater number of photons all coming through at that time. And then it gets Fewer and fewer. Fewer and fewer. Destructive um, interference down here. To right? a minimum. Yeah, and and then, then it... Constructive interference and then, yeah. So we see... All right, so let me yeah. see if I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So our single photon enters this beam splitter, splits into two selves, as it right. were. One going upper arm, one going bottom arm. Re they recombine here. Right. And when they recombine, because the upper arm has a continually changing length... Right. We're going to see interference as if they were two way, as if they were, um, you know, two parts of a continuous wave. That's right. That are recombining and creating the characteristic sinusoidal pattern. But when they're detected, they're detected as they were up in this experiment right. as a single indivisible particle. It's just that we have more of them at, di at different times. More of what? Of the single particles. So in other words, this yeah. is more particles than here. Chester, tell me if you think this is right. Okay. If this were classical physics, you know, physics of Newton, these uh, photons coming out of our converter here, understood to be all identical objects, mm -hmm. indistinguishable things, would... <laughs> take the same path every time because it's being subjected to the same condition mm -hmm. by this by this beam splitter and by either of the two mirrors that it so if it it would always go the same way either to b prime or to b depending on what's actually happening in those in those beam splitters but now in the quantum world um, what we actually see happen with these photons is that they seem to have a choice they can end up in B prime or in B, mm. never both. How is it that a particle can have a choice, a kind of freedom about where it ends up? Yeah. Uh, is, is, am I making too fast and loose with words, or is that, is that no, the a language way of, of talking? No, the language about, of choice does uh, seep into this, yeah. this, this kind of explanation. Uh, I mean, I guess we could talk about determinism that... Uh, uh, and I, I think that's why the language of waves is so helpful to us that even though Dirac is Dirac is trying to avoid pictures and so it's very easy to think of a way a picture of something continuous or, uh, or of something particular mm -hmm. uh, 
Bohr before him wants to talk about complementarity. He would say, no, just go back and forth with those two pictures mm -hmm. when it's most useful to, and by the kind of going back and forth, given the circumstance, you can discover a lot of truth. Okay. But that is going to irritate certain people because what, why would I go back and forth? Isn't it one thing or the other? Yes, exactly. Uh -huh. Isn't that the very basis of scientific thinking, that if you do the same thing to the same object, you get the same result? That's right. 100% um, of the time. That's right. And so I guess probability is starting to seep its way in there. I want to say, though, that probability is just a very powerful interpretation of what was going on in the quantum revolution, so to speak. That mm -hmm. is to say, when Schrodinger came up with a wave equation for the you know, hydrogen atom, uh, 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 that wave, I mean, we don't want to go into the refinements of, of interpretation, but Schrodinger too was a little bothered by probability. Yes. He thought he had that this thing was some kind of a wave. Now, maybe a new yeah. kind of a wave. But what's bothersome about probability? It bothered Einstein tremendously, yeah. right? Right. They famously said, God does not throw dice. Right. Yeah. yeah As if God himself couldn't predict where it would end up at B or B prime. So if the results of your measurements are probabilities, so what is that telling you about the, the being that you're looking at? I mean, that'd be the question or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you've kind of That's, given up on, it's as if there would be more knowledge to know about it. What's, what's yeah. behind it? What's, may, maybe the better thing to say is what's, and maybe, the, maybe your choice example was good. Just the very simple thing, when a photon goes through a crystal, Sometimes it can either be absorbed or go through yeah. if it's coming in in exactly the same way. Yeah. Does it choose to do one or the other? Yeah, what? Yeah, maybe that's, that's the simplest that's the, way to the think. That's the simplest. Yeah. yeah. So uh, a particle of light, which we've, now we've kind of persuaded that such a thing exists, there it is. This uh -huh. one has goes through. The next one maybe doesn't go through. Mm-hmm. And we take, just like flipping a coin, like we, take flipping a, a coin. we take a thousand of them and 499 go through and 501 don't go through. <laughs> but I've always thought in flipping a coin, if I knew everything about that coin and all, uh, all of its interactions with the particles of air on the way up and on mm -hmm. the way down and what happens when it hits the ground, all the forces at work, I could theoretically, I could predict. Yeah, that that would be Einstein. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that that's right. He would say we don't know it yet. So the, the, that, yeah. but that there are, but we will know about it if we just knew things. We knew all those hidden variables. Right, and he, yeah, uh, because it didn't make sense. Well, it didn't make sense to Einstein, for example, that you could do an investigation of one particle, for example, this particle here, and have it influence another particle which was very far apart from it. Mm -hmm. That why should the knowledge of one thing disturb something mm -hmm. 
So he claimed at a, at a certain distance, and this is sometimes called the principle of locality, mm -hmm. something in its particular place, when we know something about it here, it should not influence what we know about something yeah, that over That also here. seems like common sense. Seems like common sense, but our seniors, as we speak, are doing an experiment that, uh, uh, to show themselves that that kind of thinking, the results don't yeah. of an experiment Again, getting particular photons being counted as units doesn't justify that. That, yes. that kind of thinking is violated. Okay. <laughs> so not only have we, have we got to accept um, uh, probability as the very nature or, or the very beingness of things, they're probabilistic right. beings. Right. But we also must accept this other this other idea you just mentioned that things are separate things that can be very far away from each other right. are entangled instantaneously. Right. So that what happens to one at the at the very instant that it happens to one, the the other object that it's entangled with a million miles away is also having something happen to it. Yeah, and I wasn't going to mention this, but it strikes me that, well, look, I'm giving a preceptorial on Dostoevsky right now, and often a character will say the following thing. Uh, I was surprised to see this amazing thing happen, but I knew it was going to happen or something like that. Yeah. Or, or Something like, in other words, this whole idea that it, that what's, that how we affect one another or how beings affect one another is simply to be understood in a Newtonian framework mm -hmm. with our notions of space and time, our notions of information being conveyed at a limiting speed, that is the speed of light. That's, that's, that's a very deep fruit of things we learn in the junior lab, but it may not be at the heart of even what we want to call physics yeah. or something like that. So maybe there's some way that the poets and writers like Dostoevsky or Pascal have sensed this in their own ways all along. I think so. I mean, I'm a, yeah, so we... I mean, humanly speaking, they yeah. have sensed that this is the kind of world that yeah. human beings live in, yeah. in their own relations with each other. And there are, by the way, interpreters of quantum mechanics that feel that thinking influences these physical measurements and things like that. There are many that think there are many worlds. I hesitate to go into them because yeah. oftentimes they are genuine scientists yeah. and they have a mathematics behind what they're saying, Is but I simply don't understand it. Yeah, I've heard about yeah the multiple worlds hypothesis. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's as if as one of the consequences. There of was quantum, an explosion yeah. that happens before the, our students' eyes, where the very sober Newtonian, you know, I, I think uh, Newton himself, I would not say, is such a sober yeah. thinker. If you read some of the things he thought yeah. about alchemy and even about how sure. you know how. They're wild, yeah. But nonetheless, the kind of physics we get Hitler, from yeah. that seems to be very rational. Yeah. Uh, it seems to be part of the Cartesian project. Yeah. 
Uh, and I think in the senior laboratory, at a certain part, when we start to investigate the very small, yeah. the kind of physics and mathematics that we use, we say breaks down, it works. So I want to be very sober in my own uh, assessment yeah, of that. Huh? It's not as if we have two different worlds, but the very big, in some ways, kind of, can be a kind of approximation of the very small. It's only when we get to the very small that we start to discover these very yeah. big things. But the things that happen at the level of the very small have manifestations in the very big. I'll say, just for people's curiosity, there are now people trying to apply the indeterminacy principles to very big objects. Wow. So I, th I think the sky is, there's no limit. The popular science yeah. kind of gets, piques your in in interest, but it's all based upon things that are happening. One last thing I'll say is that uh, I remember in a study group studying that there is energy in the void. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, am I in Lucretius or an anti? But the key to that is that due to the Heisenberg indeterminacy principle, when you study, try to get measure energy, when you try to measure mm -hmm. energy, if you do it in time that's too short, your energy is indeterminate. So basically, I'll make people who are going to worry not worry. Conservation of energy is still thought to exist. Uh. But if you do certain experiments, energy will look as if it is fluctuating. Wow. Uh, so there are all kinds of paradoxes here. I just would well, have... But this feeds the imagination. It, it feeds and, the imagination. And that imagination, maybe for, if you're a poet, can be trusted. Yes. As indicative of something. I mean, just the thought that one thing can somehow be two things and or the one thing has a some kind of choice between two paths yeah. does suggest there's that the th question we always ask ourselves humanly what if i had taken the right path instead of the left one or what if i had done this differently or what if i that, took i'm sorry yeah, you know, that's the I, other world what if know, i took right now both paths yeah but then still chose for example to either go to dinner tonight. I, you know, see what I'm saying? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the depth. I'm, I'm dead serious, but that's the depth of the of Dirac, that the notion of a state is a way of expressing all these potencies, yeah. although yeah. I'm not sure that it's potency quite in the way Aristotle yeah. meant, yeah. but they're all there, and then when we they're, measure them, one they're, appears. They're potentially infinite, because you could just add on other, you know, that's right. Wave functions, if you're thinking that way, or other paths. But for Dirac, we don't know which is going to express itself. Maybe a great poet knows yeah, yeah. what you and I are going to do tomorrow. <laughs> so our students, as juniors, start out with, as you were saying, you know, looking at a the path of a of an object that you drop or a projectile, which is a mm -hmm. parabola. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where it starts. You know, getting those paths into you know, physical laws. Uh, and where we end up is not being able to know exactly the path in its completeness, both yeah. position and momentum, um, you know, in senior year. So, I mean, what is, 
So what's happened? I mean, what along the way, right. where we given where we started and where we are now, mm-hmm. what's that experience like for for the students? Yeah. So on the one hand, they're starting where they feel very comfortable, even if they haven't taken a science course in high school. On the other hand, they're taking a radical new beginning because Descartes is putting together nature and mathematics. Mm -hmm. And that is something which is worth a human being should think about a lot. Mm -hmm. But eventually it becomes old hat to them because it looks like through a kind of experimentation and the clarity of, of algebra and then the power of the calculus. It looks beautiful and determined. And, and, we, and, and, and we take lawful. this notion of motion, yeah. uh, basically locomotion, and we show how any given path, any given motion can be expressed mathematically in a rather elegant and mm-hmm. determined manner. Right. We, it applies to astronomy, it applies to our world here below. It's, it's a beautiful order. It's a tremendous order. Mm-hmm. It then gets richened and richened with electricity and magnetism. Which fall under the Newtonian Cartesian umbrella. They kind of fall of- under it until they're reinterpreted through Faraday and Maxwell but still at least with Maxwell under the Newtonian umbrella called electrodynamics. Yeah. Although we have this powerful notion of a wave, which is going to become very important. Mm-hmm. They move, there are only seven pieces of mathematics they need, three Newtonian equations, and four or three Ma- Newtonian laws, and four Maxwell, four Maxwell yeah. equations. Although yeah. if Fat had enough to want to say that Maxwell really had 20. Yeah. Uh, so seven basic mathematical things. They get into the senior year, and for some reason the small is being investigated. One of the reasons it's being investigated is that Maxwell himself is, he died very young, but he would have gotten a lot further. He's interested in the particles of gases, so we're getting very many. He's interested in, in numerous particles that are very small. I'll stop yeah. right there where you can't see them. He's trying to get the laws of the small particles, which by the way, give us our pressure and temperature laws, which students learn in the freshman year. Mm -hmm. That study of the very small gets picked up by Planck. uh, And, but really gets more concretely picked up simply by people looking at things which turn out to be electrons, Mm -hmm. things which turn out to be atomic nucleuses. And can only be approached in aggregate. Really. Can only, only be approached be in aggregate, in aggregate. Yeah. but we're using the mathematics and the kind of thinking about space and time and about causality and oh. uh, of well, what we do in the junior year. Yeah, it's a play- Which are like it, marble, individual bodies. And yeah. it works beautifully yeah. until it's pushed to a certain limit and then, in which nothing makes sense and by nothing makes sense we get these kind of paradoxes these kinds of paradoxes which can't be explained this way but then what what you're saying then is that since those little things at the limit are what makes up everything 
you know, the electrons, the protons, the atoms, the, all of the big things are made up of little things that we don't really understand. Yes. And I have to add the next step is the people bef kind of De Bruyne, mm. they, they have this amazing thought that just as bodies, well, let's start the other way, just as we can understand light as both a wave and the ray with the path worked out by a particle, so maybe we can understand bodies as traveling okay. bodies and waves. waves. Yeah. It's that last one. And they do it in a Euclidean proportion as a light body is to a light ray. Sorry, as a light body is to a light wave, so is a material body to our students learn how to do the fourth proportion yeah. to a matter wave. wave. Yep. Yep. Completely insane at first, but to make a long story short, once given that analogy, the ship has sailed mm -hmm. and we end up with a wave equation describing the integral body. That wave equation then needs to be interpreted. This is where we get to probability. Mm. At a certain point in the late 1920s, you've got all the fodder you need, but we need the interpretation. And one of the paths of the interpretation is probability. I don't know what the wave itself actually is, but I can interpret it when I take measurements as the probability of getting a certain measurement. So, but there we're leaving yeah, behind what the thing was, although we're measuring it, but we're measuring yeah. You know, it just sort of reminds me of this sort of thing I was reading when I was involved with uh, literary criticism back in the day, that there's no text anymore. It's all interpretation. Yes, it's, that, that's kind of happened in most of the disciplines, I think. I won't start talking about music, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I want to say this, that... But that seems like where, where it's going and what you just described as the arc. We're giving up the text of physics yeah. for interpretation. But oddly enough, I think I can come full circle in this interview. The interpretation then becomes almost infinite and, for me, kind of horrific because which way am I going to go? But that's where experiment comes back. Continuing the Conversation is a 20-episode web and podcast series produced by the St. John's College Communications Office in partnership with 12FPS and A Warehouse Productions. To continue the conversation with St. John's College, which offers a bachelor's degree in liberal arts, in-person and online master's degrees in liberal arts and Eastern classics, as well as Summer Academy for High School students and Summer Classics for Lifelong Learners, Go to sjc.edu.